Well, good morning, fellowship. As Eric said, my name is Monty, and so excited to be here this morning to teach God's word uh, for us. If you were here last week, we got to celebrate the 25 years at fellowship, and it was such a beautiful service. I know, like many of you guys, I walked away so inspired by what God is doing in this church and what God is doing through our people. That I, for me, it's like you're almost meeting a hero of faith and you bump into somebody who's been here for 25 years or for even 13 years and you just want to say thank you, right? That we get to benefit for what God is doing through us and through this community. And even last week, we got to hear stories on stage. And I think when you hear these stories, that you kind of are inspired to even think about your own story, about God's faithfulness in your own life. And I know uh, for me personally, this last week was six years for my wife, Molly, and I since we moved to Nashville. Yes, that's good. That, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, we're, we came here, and, and for Molly and I both, it was a step of faith because we didn't have a whole lot of friends here. We maybe knew two people here in Nashville. We didn't have any family. Uh, Molly was six months pregnant, and we had a nine-month-old. And we were excited. We felt like God was calling us to come here. But we moved here on a Wednesday last week, six years ago. And we were excited to get here because that night I was supposed to be at a ch- uh, the church for a, my first event was student ministry. And so, you know, like you do, you kind of move into your house, you're getting ready. So we started grabbing things to go into our townhome. We rented this house, sight unseen, have never seen the house before. But the first step that we walk into this townhome, we realize the entire house is flooded. I mean, the entire townhome destroyed, water everywhere. All the floors are buckled. It is a mess. We just are like looking at ourselves, being like, what are we going to do? And so we call our landlord, we begin to ask her some questions, and it, you know, becomes clear that we're not going to move into the house today, and that she says several days, ends up being several weeks before we can move in. And so here we are with our nine-month-old, first day in town. We have nobody to call. We don't know what to do. And we just are sitting there together with tears in our eyes, just being like, what happens now? And so um, I'm supposed to be at the church. And so I leave Molly and I go to the church and I get to the you know, church and I'm doing this event with students and I'm trying to show up and engage the best that I can. It's my first night for them to meet me and I'm struggling. And afterwards, there's a chance for us to meet the families. And so they bring all the families into this room and they're like, hey, like introduce yourself. And so I get up in front of these families and I'll tell you, like vulnerability is not something that I'm, I'm used to. And I quickly have learned that this church is all about it. <laughs> um, and so I, the Lord had prompted my heart in that moment, though, to share with these families what was going on. And so I began to describe our situation. And I'll tell you, that first day that I walked into this church has forever marked me. Because what happened afterwards is that there was 20 plus families that were lined up. And I'm telling you, one by one, they just came over and were praying over us and offering their resources, offering their money, their home, come live with us. Like it blew my mind of the faithfulness and the generosity of this church. And what I experienced day one is what I've seen to be so true and who we are today. But you see, I tell you that story this morning because here's the thing. When we experience the tangible love of Christ, it changes us. When we experience his love, it changes us. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. If you were here a couple weeks ago, if we think back, Mike Vogt, one of our elders, he led us through the first part of John 13. And Mike did a beautiful job as he talked about this story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And so Jesus is performing this demonstration of love as he's in the upper room and he's washing their feet. And, and You know, the crazy thing is that Jesus, he knows in the next 24 hours, every single one of these guys are going to turn their back on him. Yet in this story, Jesus is showing up and he's modeling love to these men. And so Mike kind of asked the question, you know, what is it going to take for you and me to begin to prioritize the needs of other people above our own? 
Like if Jesus himself, right? Jesus is washing the feet of Judas who is about to betray him. He's washing his feet. What keeps you and I doing, from, you know, doing these similar types of things for other people? And so it's this demonstration of, of love that Jesus has begun to show us in Acts chapter 13. And as we continue through this chapter, we're gonna see this theme continue on. You see, the, the second part of John 13, it's all about the betrayal of Judas. And I think a lot of us have heard this story so many times. So we think about this story and we can think about, I know what Judas is gonna do and I can't believe Judas would do that. And like we run the narrative through our head because we know the story. But this morning, as we unpack the scripture, I want you to pause for a second and I want you to see that this story is so much bigger than just a betrayal. That as we begin to unpack this text, that we begin to see this narrative and this faithful love of a father who is showing up with compassion and with grace and with mercy as he's extending it, not to just his disciples, but also to Judas. And what we begin to see this morning, the invitation that Jesus is gonna give his disciples is the same invitation that he gives you and me and here's the invitation for us is that we would begin to love others the way that Christ loves us. And so pay attention to the details, pay attention to the story and the way that it begins to unfold because what Jesus is showing you and I is the way to do it. So let's jump into the text this morning. We're gonna be in verse 21. Um, if you're an outline person, someone, you know, kind of an outline to help us as we look at the text this morning, verses 21 through 26, we're gonna see the betrayal of Judas take place. Verses 27 through 30, we're gonna see the departure as Judas leaves the room. And then in verses 31 through 38, we're gonna see the way that Jesus steps into this uncomfortable situation and begins to move the disciples forward. And so verse 21, let's read it together. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me important context for us to have here right now is that already three times in John 13, Jesus has pointed to the betrayal that's about to happen. And so in verse 21, Jesus is repeating it again as he says, this thing's about to take place. And so at the start of that verse, after saying these things, we have to ask the question, what did he just say? Well, if we go back to John chapter 13 and verses 18 and 19, Jesus, he quotes this passage from Psalm. And it's really important to understand what he quotes because Jesus says in this passage, he says, he who receives the bread is gonna turn his heel against me. And so he's telling it as he's telling this story. And I love, because we know that the, 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 the gospel of John was written by John. And it's as if John is in this room, he's writing these things down. He's paying close attention to the things that Jesus is saying. And not only is he paying attention to what he's saying, but he's listening to the voice of Jesus. And he describes it. He says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Troubled is an important thing for us to understand. It's an important emotion that Jesus is feeling because that exact same word, troubled, is also used in John chapter 11, verse 33, as Jesus is standing at Lazarus's grave, that it describes that his heart is troubled, as his eyes are full of tears, that the pain of what he's feeling in that moment is troubled in his heart. We see that exact same word also used in John 12, 27, as Jesus is describing the crucifixion as he talks about the weight of the cross and the things that go before him, that he describes his soul is troubled. And so I wanna pay attention because words matter and the ways that John describes what's going on in Jesus' heart is important to the emotional life of Jesus because he is troubled. 
And what I love is because what we see here is that his heart is troubled and it's not just troubled for himself, but it's troubled for someone else. You see, in 24 hours, Jesus is gonna be put to death on a cross. And in this moment, his heart is troubled, not for himself, but it's for someone else. And what a picture of who Jesus is, that it's for someone else. And so as we get into verse 22, the disciples, they look at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. We have to understand that even here is another picture of the heart of Jesus. You see, these men, they've been walking together for three years. They know each other. They have relationships with one another. And if there was any doubt or hesitation in their mind that one of these guys were gonna turn their back onto Jesus, they would have known. They would have seen it. Yet in this moment, in this room, the only person who knows the heart of Judas is Jesus himself. Right, and here we see it. Jesus knows the heart of Judas and he's not pushing him away. He could have easily put him out of the room and all this would have been taken care of and none of this would have happened, but he's inviting him in, knowing what he's gonna do, knowing what's in his heart. He doesn't push him away, but he's bringing him in closer. You see, it's in the upper room that, that, that Jesus is moving towards Judas. Like as he washes the feet of the disciples, think about this for a second. He washes Judas's feet as well. And so even in the the feet washing, as Jesus is washing their feet, you can imagine if the disciples are all kind of lined up together in a line, as Jesus is going one by one. And then when Jesus gets to Peter to wash his feet, Peter tells him, do not wash me. And Jesus tells him, hey, if you want to be a part of what I'm doing, then I must wash you. And then Peter tells him, okay, well, don't just wash my feet, but wash my hands and wash my head. And Jesus tells Peter, hey, if you've already had a bath and you were already clean, but not all of you are clean. Can you imagine this moment as the disciples are all sitting together and Jesus is saying, not all of you are clean. Yet in that very moment, he gets down on his knees as he makes eye contact with a man who's about to betray him. And it's in this moment that he begins to wash his feet. As he looks at him, you gotta imagine Judas, (laughs) I know what you're thinking. I know what you're gonna do. And I love you. And so it's in this room that this event is taking place that we're seeing the heart of Jesus. So let's go to verse 23. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter, he motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? You see, I think about this, this dinner um, for a lot of us, that we, when we think about this image, what we visualize is the painting that we've seen, right? It's a long table. And at this table, you have Jesus in the center of them all and people are kind of gathered around. And many scholars would actually say that's not what was happening in this table, that traditionally a meal like this would have taken place at a table that's a kind of a U-shaped table. And the table would be really low And at this table, there would be these little sofas that these men would sit on as they kind of recline together. And so it's believed that what they would do is that they would kind of recline on their left elbow as they eat with their right hand. And we can begin even to see in this text that that kind of is a way that it says that even John is reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And so what we know to be true in this text is that we know that John is right next to Jesus. We know that. And as we begin to get in this text, we're gonna begin to see some other things that tell us that Judas would have been really close to Jesus. You see, many scholars believe that Judas would have been right to the left side of Jesus. And so perhaps let's visualize a U-shaped table as Jesus is reclining with his disciples. And at the head of the table, you have Judas, you have Jesus, and you have John. 
And so I don't know, perhaps, you know, as Jesus is walking in and these men are coming to the table, hey, Judas, why don't you come to my left? Hey, John, come to my right, because we need to have a conversation. I don't know. But what we do know is these men would have been very close in proximity. And it matters because we're going to see that it's Jesus continuing to move towards Judas. And so at this table, the scripture says, I love this moment because I can imagine like our kids doing this at the table, right? Where something is said and nobody wants to ask who said it or, or what is it. But you have Peter over here who's like, John, like he's just kind of waving that. John, like, will you ask Jesus who he's talking about? Can you ask him who he's speaking of? And so Jesus reclined, or John reclining up against Jesus looks at him and he says, Lord, who is it? And it's such a beautiful moment that the relationship that we know about John and Jesus and in this moment, Jesus, he answers the question for them. So we get into verse 26. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And so I want you guys to understand some context here because it's important to understand that in the culture of this time, that if you were at a table, if you were at a dinner with some friends, and if you were to dip a morsel into anything and hand it to somebody, that would have been a sign of friendship. We see this in Ruth chapter two, verse 11, as Boaz invites Ruth into his home, it says that he dips the morsel into the cup and he hands it to her. And so what we see is this moment symbolizing what would be great friendship, great love and great respect. It's the very thing that Jesus is using in this moment to communicate who is about to betray him. And so the gospel of John, he writes that it was bread that Jesus grabs and it's important for us to understand this. That as Jesus grabs the bread off the table, then he hands it over to Judas. In Mark chapter 14, the same, you know, in his gospel account in Mark 14, what he describes is that this thing happens. And as soon as this moment happens with Judas, Mark talks about this Lord's Supper. All right. So Mark describes that as Judas leaves the room, that Jesus grabs these elements that are on the table. And he says, this is the, the bread, the body of Christ broken for you. And then he says, this is the cup, the blood of Christ that is poured out for you. And so the very things that Jesus is gonna use on this table, the very thing that he uses as the bread to describe his body being broken for his disciples is the very thing that Jesus grabs before that happens. And he takes it and he hands it to Judas. I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus uses bread to be the very thing that he hands this over to Judas. And so many scholars believe that this would have been one last attempt at Jesus showing Judas love. One last attempt of Jesus reaching out to Judas and saying, here you go. But here's what we have to understand. It's in this moment as Jesus is handing the bread over to Judas that Judas, he's able to take the bread, but he doesn't receive the love with which Jesus offered it. He takes the bread, but he doesn't take the love in which Jesus is offering it to him. And it's in this moment that we know Judas has already made his mind up, that we know what Judas is gonna do. Jesus knew what Judas was gonna do, but it never stopped him from loving him. It never stopped Jesus from reaching out to him. And so we get into verse 27. And it says in verse 27, this is kind of the departure. We're about to see Judas leave the room. And it's important to understand what happens as he's leaving. And so in verse 27, it says, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're gonna do, do it quickly. The scripture says Satan entered into him. 
earlier in the chapter, this chapter, John says the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. And so now that Satan has entered into him, it's become clear that we understand now that Judas is not acting alone. And so it's with each act of kindness, it's each step of compassion and love as Jesus is modeling it in the upper room, as he's moving towards Judas, that his heart is growing darker and colder and more resistant to what Jesus wants for him. And it's at this moment that Jesus tells him, do what you're gonna do. And so Judas is gonna leave the room and I can't imagine in this moment if you're Judas and you've experienced this reaching out And as Judas walks out of this room and the door closes behind him, that he looks back and he sees this faint light through the door. And as he goes, what he does, and he sets in motion that the very son of God is now gonna be put to death on the cross. As Judas is leaving, the whole story begins to change. And so now we get into verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag that Jesus was telling them, buy what we need for this feast or that we should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was nighttime, but it was night. You see, I think two things that John helps us see here just really clearly for us. The first thing he shows us is that the disciples still have no clue what's going on, that they are clueless at what's happening And that's why many scholars would believe that Judas would have been so close in proximity because perhaps the exchange that took place, no one else at the table knew that it had happened. Nobody at the table understood why it happened, yet Judas did. And so as Judas gets up to leave, the disciples, they begin to talk to one another. And so they're asking themselves, oh, maybe maybe Jesus is sending Judas to go get more food. Like that could be it. Or no, maybe he's going to go get money to the poor. Like both of these things would have been very common practices and in their Jewish customs at this time. And so they're clueless, they have no idea. And I can see that perhaps this is even another place of Jesus showing love as he, he's the only one that knows what's going on. And the second thing we see in verse 30, right? After receiving the morsel of bread, he went out and it was night. As we study the book of John, that we've seen this correlation of night and darkness as it represents evil. And what we know in this moment that it's dark outside, but that's not the only thing that's dark. That Judas's heart is full of darkness. And he's leaving to go do the very thing that he had set out to do as he works in accordance, as Satan has entered into him. He's not acting alone. He is going. And now Jesus is in this room. And so as you just gotta picture it, right? We're having this intimate dinner and all of a sudden Judas is gone. The door closes. And now we're gonna move into the second part of our, or third part of our outline this morning as we think about the way forward. You see, Judas going into the night tells us that Jesus his time is rushing upon him like a wave. And so as the door closes, it's almost as a new sense of excitement begins to grip the story. You see, I just want you to think about this for a moment. Let's say you go to the doctor tomorrow morning and you find out that you have 24 hours to live. And you come home and you gather your family inside the living room and say, hey, come on guys, I need to talk to you real quick. You gather your children in. Like in that moment, I want you to think about your posture. I want you to think about your voice and the way that you would communicate to your children in this moment. As you had to get them ready for life without you, how would you be communicating to them? 
this is what Jesus has to do in this very moment, that Jesus, he feels the urgency to get his people ready, that he has to prepare them for the horrific events that are gonna take place over the next 24 hours and that he has to commission them for their mission into the world. And so he's trying to gather them in. He's like, come here, I have to talk to you. I have to tell you everything you need to know because soon I'm gonna leave and you are not gonna have me. And so I need you to know these things. And so what we have to understand is that the next things that unfold in this upper room over the next several chapters of John are some of the most intimate moments with Jesus in that room because what he begins to share are the last words that he has. And so every word that begins to come out of his mouth, it matters because they know he's about to leave. And so Jesus is setting the scene up as he begins to communicate. And so now we get into verse 31. As Judas is now gone, he says this in 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. It's a lot of glory happening there. (laughs) Five times in two verses. And what we need to understand is the weight and the gravity of Jesus' words in this moment. That Jesus tells him, just as he did in John chapter 12 that, that Lloyd taught a few weeks ago, is that what you need to know is I am gonna suffer and I'm gonna die. That that is why I have come. That I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna die, and it's all gonna be about the glory of God and that God will give glory through me as all of you are gonna receive new life. And so you, we have to understand, like as we think about the other gospel narratives, that, that so many of them in this moment, they don't understand as Jesus is saying these things. They're, they're like, what are you talking about? And so Jesus, he can begin to see that, right? Let's see it in verse 33. He says, little children, Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And so we know the disciples are asking questions and they're beginning to think that, that this, what he's saying about what's gonna happen is so different than perhaps what we thought was gonna happen. And they're asking these questions and we know this because the other gospel accounts tell us this. And so in this moment, Jesus looks at him, he says, little children. That I can imagine as a dad of three little kids, some in this living room with my kids and I'm pulling them in. Little children, come here. I'm not speaking down upon you. He's not looking down on them by calling them little children. He's calling them little children because it's the most intimate words he could come up with in that moment. Come here, let me talk to you. Let me tell you something. And Jesus tells him, hey, I am gonna leave you and where I'm going, you cannot come. You see, with Jesus, he had said this already a few chapters ago to the Jews. As the Jews, he was talking to them and he said, you will not be able to come. I am gonna leave and you cannot come because you have rejected Jesus. But later in John, we're gonna see this isn't the case for the disciples. He's trying to let the disciples know in this moment, only he can die this death. Only he can pay this price. He is the only one that can do it. Where I am going, you cannot come, but soon you will come. Soon you'll get to be a part of this. And so Jesus, he's pulling them in. And it's like everything's kind of built into this one moment as Jesus is about to drop something new for them. And so he's communicated, hey, I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna die. And where I'm going, you cannot come, but won't you come a little bit closer to me? And so in verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you. Take that in for a moment. We're 24 hours away from losing Jesus and he's given us a new commandment and he's bringing him in closer and he's saying, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you 
you are also to love one another. And so as we know, the call to love others isn't a new commandment at this point, that the Israelites, they were commanded to love one another, right? They were commanded to love their neighbor as they love themselves. And so the old commandment was such a measure of your own self-love by how well you loved yourself then would determine how well you're able to love your neighbor. And so if this was the measure of love that you and I were called to live by, that you and I would fail very often. If, if it was the expectation that you and I were to love our spouses the way that we love ourselves or our children, like we are so fickle and our love for ourselves can be so determined by how we feel about ourselves. And we all struggle with this, but Jesus is raising the bar even higher. He's telling his followers to love each other as he's loved them. And so the measure of their love now wasn't just based on their own self-love, but on the love that Jesus had demonstrated towards them that Jesus is moving them, listen to this, he's moving them from a love that is self-focused to a love that is self-sacrificial. And so it's in this room, this one last model of love that Jesus is demonstrating. And it's a love they don't understand, it's a love that they're confused by, but that love was a love that was self-sacrificial. And Jesus is saying, this is the kind of love I want you to have, that you would love one another as I have loved you. And so it's this self-sacrificial love that places the needs of others above their own. It's a love that is rooted in grace and humility and compassion. And the only way that you and I can begin to understand this new commandment is in light of the cross, in light of what Jesus has done for you and me. That we have seen the victory that Jesus has had over death and he's resurrected. And so we know what he's saying. And he says, saying, this is a commandment I give to you. And so now it's the greatness of Jesus' love for us. It's the motivation for loving others. And if we truly love Jesus deeply and we understand what he's done for us, that you and I begin to show others this type of love. That we begin to love the people who are unkind or the people who have hurt us or damaged us. Like we begin to love the world the way that Christ loves us. And so in this room, as Jesus gives them this new commandment, it's not just a commandment for them, but it's a commandment for all of us that you and I would love people the way that Christ loves us. And so we get into verse 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The disciples of Jesus are to love one another as he has loved them. And that love is to mark them and to distinguish them and make it their most notable feature. Jesus is saying that you would love in such a way when people look at you, they see that you are followers of Jesus that it's a love that when you experience, it changes you and it transforms the relationships around you. And so this morning, this is the commandment that Jesus has given us, that you and I would love others the way he loved us, that you would love your family that way, your coworkers that way, the people in your fellowship group that way, that you would love people in a way that Christ loves us. And so here's the thing about this commandment, that it feels heavy, it feels hard. And honestly, there's a lot of commandments that Jesus gives us throughout the scriptures that can feel heavy or hard to follow. But what we have to understand is this, is that Jesus never requires us to do anything that he himself hasn't embodied and empowered us to do through his guidance. That he has never required us to do anything that he himself hasn't embodied and empowered us to do. And so what does that mean? That when Jesus asks you to do something, he's shown you how to do it and he's given you the power to do it. 
that we have both the model and the power, that we have everything that we need for the life of godliness and the things that he has called you into. And so you think about that relationship that's in front of you that seems like, man, that seems really hard to love that person. Like you have no idea how they've wronged me, how they've hurt me. Gosh, I think about my children. It's like 10 times a day that I wanna just yell at them and lose my mind. And it feels impossible to think that I could ever really love them in that way. But if I can remember that Christ has modeled it and has given me the power to do it, then it begins to change everything. And so this morning, I wanna, I wanna bring the band back up as we close our time together. And as they're coming up, I want you guys to go ahead and get your communion elements ready. If you have those, you can go and pull those out. You see the application for us this morning. As we think about the invitation, as we think about this commandment that Jesus has given you and me, the application for us this morning is this. How do we begin to do that? The application is the only way that we can begin to show this type of love is by receiving Jesus's love for us first. The only way that we can begin to do this. You can't just walk out of here deciding that you're going to be a better person or that you're going to be determined that you can just love people better. But as you begin to understand the implications of the cross and the work of Jesus and his movement towards you and what he's done for you, that when we receive that, that enables us to love people like he loves us. And so as we hold these elements in our hand, I want to go back to a moment in the room with Judas. And I want us to think about that moment as Jesus is sitting there with Judas, as Jesus extends the bread over to him. That we know Judas, he takes the bread, but not the love with which Jesus offers it to him. You see, I think for a lot of us, this can be where we struggle to love people. That you and I can struggle to love people because we struggle to receive Jesus's love for us. There's these parts that we carry within our stories. Perhaps it's shame or guilt or fear, or there's things that make us believe that there's no way that Jesus could really love you. And so this morning, I want you to think about this, that just as Jesus is moving to the darkest heart of Judas, that Jesus is moving towards you. And that he loves you. And as you begin to receive that love, that it changes everything. And so as we do communion each week, it's, you know, one thing for us to go through the motions of communion, but it's a whole other thing for us to stop for a moment and to think about what these things mean for us. That these things that we hold in our hands each and every week, it is the representation of Jesus' love for you. His sacrificial love for you. And so this morning, as we get to take communion, I want to remind us that the bread of Christ, his body broken for you, that you would take it. And as you do, that you would also receive the love with which he gives it to you. Let's take it. And this morning, as we receive the cup, the blood of Christ poured out for you, that as you take this cup, that you would receive his love with which he offers it to you.
morning, we're gonna continue to worship and together. And as we do, I, I pray that you would invite Jesus' presence to show up in your life and to show you how much he loves you, that he really does love you. And as we experience that love, may our response be to worship him together. Let's worship this morning.